Welcome to Enough Y'all, the Real Talk podcast for social justice academics doing the soul's work. I'm your host, Dr. Kim Case, a social psychologist, Appalachian academic, and clogger with the passion for truth-telling. In the show, I explore the intricate and tangled web of academic socialization and myths that do immense harm to not only our social justice efforts, but also to us as whole humans. What if you could fully embrace your talents, swipe left on fear, declutter your career, claim your enough, and curate the freedom for your most meaningful life? Enough with all the career misery, exhaustion and burnout, academic brainwashing, internalized academic capitalism, and lack of compassion for ourselves. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find essays, resources, and hop on my community newsletter at drkimcase.com. For those social justice academics ready to transform their careers, my faculty development courses are also available on the website. Let's get into the show. Dr. Ryan M. Pickering is an associate professor of psychology and affiliate professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Allegheny College. He received his BA in psychology from the University of Maine at Farmington and his PhD from the University of Maine. He's been teaching courses related to prejudice, power, and oppression for eight years. His scholarship examines disclosure of concealable stigmatized identities and best practices for the teaching of oppression. Ryan is originally from rural Maine and was a graduate of the Upward Bound program. He and his husband enjoy travel, games, gardening, and spending time together with their two cats, Baxter and Dexter. Welcome, Ryan. Hey. <laughs> hey, hey. Thank you for being here. I love the names, and I wonder if they can tell them apart because they're such similar cat names. But <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, thank you for just agreeing to do this and giving your time, but we always start out with giving each guest a chance to talk about their intersectional social location and pronouns, whatever you would like to share. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a gay, fat, atheist, uh, temporarily able-bodied, cis white man, grew up in a rural working class family and region, and I use he, him pronouns. Mm -hmm. I am curious about, I'm curious about your intentionally including that you're from a rural part of Maine and what that means to you. That's not in our plan. I just was kind of curious about it when you mentioned it in your, your description. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I've had experiences meeting other low-income faculty or faculty from low-income backgrounds who are from urban environments, mm -hmm. who are from international um, environments. And I find that being from a rural area is sort of different than those experiences. Also, there was a, a study that came out recently that basically said less, I think, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was less than 10% of faculty are from rural areas. And so I've sort of started adding that, particularly mm. because I teach in a rural environment, that I'm from a rural place, because I think it helps to sort of situate my experiences. I think it's surprising for people to find out that that Meadville, Pennsylvania is the largest city that I've ever lived in okay. with 10,000 people or right. how many people there are here. <laughs> are a lot of your students from the a similar kind of background in terms of drawing from around Meadville? Some of them are. I don't, okay. I don't know. The majority is probably from the Pittsburgh area, Okay, um, but, but many are from rural environments. Is there anything you want to say about what makes it different? What you've noticed about it being different? that has led to you including this in your, you know, sort of social location? I mean, there's, there's a lot of interesting thing. I mean, part of it is my regional accent um, that, that I talk about. And I think there are regional accents that happen in rural places, 
but I also think that our points of reference can be different. I, I know there's research on even how we give directions and that people from rural areas use landmarks instead of street names. And so sometimes I just sort of have to say, I don't know the street name. I know the landmarks. This is sort of part of the culture that I grew up in. And I think there's very little understanding of this question, but what is social class? Yeah, it's complex, right? And even thinking about this difference between low income and working class. Mm. Uh, so social class is, is so complicated. We have objective measures of social class in, in social psychology of income and education level and, and maternal education. Sometimes people use occupation. And then we have subjective experiences of social class. So how do you feel relative to others? So you can have an income of, of $70,000 and in one region, that's a lot of money. And in another region, that's not enough to pay rent. So mm -hmm. then we have the sort of non-staticness of social class that it's changing that our socioeconomic background is, is maybe different than our current status. Um, and so experiences of upward or downward mobility can change our perceptions of, of social of social class. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just so complicated. And that's what makes it really interesting to think about. I also think that social class incorporates experiences with classism in systems and structures mm -hmm. that benefit people with high status cultural norms that benefit from classism, thinking about experiences with pol policing, with taxation, mm -hmm. with medical care, definitely had experiences of classism in medical care and in education and higher education. I think it's just important to think of social class as a, a part of our culture, a part of our our way of seeing the world, of interacting with the world and, and how it can influence friendships, how you talk, morality, perceptions of people, the way you dress. The way you think about money, <laughs> right? Expectations. So there's lots of of ways that that social class has huge impacts on our lives. Yeah. Well, you covered a lot. I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating about social science, the oversimplification of it, it even if it's considered at all, right? Yeah. I guess let's issue a challenge that people try to push against the idea that this can just be a one or even two combined variables that are a demographic indicator. It's way more ingrained in like, oh my gosh, I mean, personality, your views of the world. It's not just where you fall in some sort of range of dollars. And of course, that doesn't even look at family assets and mm. inherited wealth. And mm -hmm. even if we're only talking about money, right, it leaves out a ton of things. Yeah, that. <laughs> like, debt what you have to fall back on or there's nothing to fall back on right like mm -hmm. all those things or even just uh, access to knowledge about how finances work right like yeah, if absolutely. we're only talking about finances there's still a ton missing from how we think about social class but one of the things that you said was i mean you didn't say it this way but the idea that people maybe sometimes conflate working class and low income and don't think about the nuances of how they overlap, how they might not overlap, how they might mean different things or might also mean similar things sometimes. But also higher ed is sort of obsessed with talking about first gen 
as if that group is all a certain thing as well? My thoughts are sort of what you're alluding to. I think that that first gen is often used as an umbrella term that's inaccurate and that there are a lot of low-income students who aren't first gen and there are a lot of first gen students that aren't low-income and and I think they do have unique sort of predictors and and I'm also for a first gen college student but I think that being a low-income college student is something that impacted me a little bit more. Part of the reason I bring up Upward Bound in my in my bio is because it was a really, really important program for me and my educational success. And it also taught me pride in first-gen identity, which mm-hmm. is not super common. There was, there's an article by Kat Stevens about first-gen identity and, and that there's not a lot of identification with that term among first-gen college students. Uh, also, Upward Bound taught me this pride in being a low-income student as well. And sometimes that's a, a challenge because my family doesn't didn't go to Upward Bound, right? They don't have that. Uh, my twin brother did, but my my the rest of my immediate family don't have those experiences. So they still have some of that internalized classism around the term low income. And so mm-hmm. they're far more comfortable with the term working class because mm-hmm. that's what they identify as being hardworking people and somehow higher than low low income. That's interesting, right? The the capitalism does a really good job of making sure we have another group to compare ourselves against that's yeah. not as good, <laughs> yeah. right? Like yeah. that somehow is not doing as much comes back to meritocracy myth. Absolutely. People who take government help or people who mm-hmm. don't want to get a job or sort of these these mantras of uh the other that yeah you really never truly materialize in some ways, you know, in in some ways you're saying that your some of your family members are much more comfortable than a lot of other working class folks who just call themselves middle-class. Sure. Yeah. When by many accounts that doesn't make a lot of sense, but sort of identifying up because working class would be considered less than in some way. And that might be the case, right? They they may identify more as, as middle class than working class, but there's less sort of negativity towards me when I use working class versus lower low income. income or low income. <laughs> well, and the thing is, over time, more and more, and more people are going to fall into that because the yeah. disparity is getting wider. And you were talking about, you know, social mobility, which... Do you, do you believe the phrase working class culture has any merit, I guess, is the first question. Absolutely. Yeah, I, that is a really com- complex question, maybe. I think that people from middle class and maybe upper class get this experience that is similar to sort of, I think, the white person's experience that, mm-hmm. that they're perceived as the norm or the average. Right. or And so they maybe don't see themselves as being within a culture but if you come from an outsider's perspective it's very easy to see that these cultural norms are different the way that people talk are different and I need to adapt in order to blend into this this type of environment you know there's lots of interesting research out there about class as a culture and and Klaus and, and Keltner research out there on class as a culture but for me, it's just a lived lived sort of experience that like, what is going on? I don't know. I have to learn new cultural norms right. I have to learn what what to talk about uh, with these people so that I can become invisible and hide my own background and culture and and 
ways of thinking about things. So, Do you think you ever experienced shame in terms of the hiding it or did you? Absolutely. Okay. I didn't know if the upper bound part kind of buffered you enough. Oh, there's something wrong with the way I'm doing it. So I have to figure out. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I think the, a, a big part of that is this like internalized classism and this, yeah. I need to get out of, I need to escape this mm -hmm. terrible place that is poverty and become something better and different than the place that I come from. And I think that I had to unlearn a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And so I have to convince these people that I should be accepted into their world because mm -hmm. that is the escape route. Right. And it's hard to not have that equate with fixing something that's wrong yes versus being very aware that it's not that your background is the problem but that it's the system that's the problem right like mm. that comes later if at all <laughs> yeah 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 well let me ask you can you get any more like specific about experiences moments that were oh i get it they don't see me as them or i now see myself as other or I have to figure out what this situation is because this is not how I operate. There are little moments and, and maybe bigger moments. I think when I first started my position at Allegheny, I used phrases like uh, right out straight. I was right out straight grading your papers and the students stared at me like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? So this uh, realization that even mannerisms, I call them, aren't universally understood. And okay, that first of all, that is the perfect <laughs> fun mannerisms. I love yeah. it so much. Okay, I had to uh, yeah. take a pause on that. Yeah. So what, so wait, I, you got to go back. What does it mean? Oh, right out straight means I'm working. I was working really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay, okay. From context, this. I was assuming, but yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so there are those little moments where I'm just like, oh, the way I'm speaking now I mean this is after I got my PhD right so there were still moments where I was like oh no I'm wrong I'm bad I'm dumb they're gonna see me as they they've clocked me now because mm -hmm. I have and I have experiences with that being in the closet as a as a gay person right that yeah. this sort of like oh no panic mm -hmm. they've they've caught me as a incoming faculty member there was a lot of pressure that mm -hmm. I sounded smart or that I you know faked fake that I was a smart person so they wouldn't catch on that I and you, did you feel that way I mean probably with colleagues but also in front of the classroom right like yeah uh, yeah absolutely yeah. uh that mm -hmm. that sort of intense I would think of it as stereotype threat and stereotype threat was so easy for me to understand when I was learning about it like okay yes I have that <laughs> and I was really glad when the Croise article about social class and stereotype threat came out that's a, a French name. And so that's <laughs> another <laughs> uh, stereotype threat moment. I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> there was a moment where someone who was applying for graduate school in my program, in their evaluation, somebody mentioned that their shirt wasn't silk. And so therefore, they weren't professional. And so I, it was sort of the secondhand classism where I was like, oh my gosh, if they see this person's clothes as an indicator yeah. of how prepared they are for graduate school, how the, how must they see me all the time? Because I'm poor. I, you know, I was living on my graduate assistantship. And I think part of it too, were these realizations that other people had a lot more support than I had that they weren't living on just the graduate assistantship. They yeah. had parents paying their their yes. rent for them or buying houses for them in yes. graduate school. This was so baffling for me to learn that that a <laughs> lot of a lot of my my peers had parents buy their house in graduate school 
or or the down payment at least right. uh, and that that continued that that colleagues at my institution had houses their down payments were paid by their parents and i couldn't believe it or they would have cars bought for them or they didn't have any college loans or so some of this yeah. these realizations about the amount of financial support the people around me had and that they weren't struggling financially and they weren't having problems thinking about you know how much credit limit they had to buy groceries i had a colleague say when i was saying i don't know if i can afford to go home to see my family they said well why don't your parents just pay for that oh <laughs> so this sort of lack of recognition or understanding that like even though they know i'm from a low income background but it but it's the moment where your your family's just like their family and you know yeah, right. and yeah. every other faculty member's family that they probably ever talked to yeah <laughs> yeah so there's this goes in the next question what do academics get wrong about working class and low income faculty specifically mm-hmm. one is that your parents can pay your way home yeah <laughs> we, got, we got that one okay <laughs> check uh i think one thing is that we're not all the same right mm-hmm. uh, i think this this happens for lots of people from lots of marginalized groups that, oh, you're just, you must be just like my other low income faculty friend or colleague. So I think just thinking of us as a monolith or, or thinking that one of us speaks for all of us, which I'm not trying to do in any case here, that we exist, right? Well, that's the, qu- that's the thing. How can they even lump us all together when they don't even know we exist? Yeah. And also... Some people are choosing not to state. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a lot of passing, or at least trying to. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm the person that no matter what I do, like they're always going to figure it out. Um, <laughs> and I'm pretty much okay with that too. Mm-hmm. But there was a, there was a time period where I tried, you know, tried to appear to not be from the background I was from. It likely didn't work very well. So there are people who aren't claiming the identity, right? So this is such a complicated one. Yeah. Not that people can't get race and ethnicity wrong or gender wrong. They do that all the time. But there are so many faculty. There's there's not there's not in the first place a lot of working class faculty. Mm-hmm. But within that group, there's not a lot that are saying, hey, look, reminding people, hey, this is my this is my background. And then I think it gets complicated, too, because. When you're working in equity and inclusion and social justice spaces as a white person who's from a working class background, I don't want to constantly bring up class because I think it's read as trying to not talk about race, yeah, which is not what I'm doing at all. Mm-hmm. I think for me, I've always struggled to figure out when do I, do I not, do I make parallels? Do I talk about the intersections? Do I mm-hmm. not claim that identity? Because then it's focusing on me. Yeah, and there and there's gendered stuff for me with that too. But and also for working class culture, I would claim, and not a monolith, not putting yourself at the center is a worrying about other people's issues more than your own is is also kind of part of it too. And those aren't horrible traits or anything. But then you're also not being visible in a way that points out to the academy, hey, we exist. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really tricky. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one one cultural norm for me is is suck it up and deal right that's right just keep your head down and that's right and it's you, you know, figure out your problems nobody else needs to figure your problems. Right. nobody yeah. else to know about your problems yeah it's all just yep yeah <laughs> do not yeah. ask for help ever by the way right, right. so <laughs> yeah. help others and never mm-hmm. receive help for sure you know i don't think i've unlearned that uh, i think i still do a lot of that and i, and I do want to bring up I, this 
concealment issue because it's not only just that working class faculty uh, or faculty from working class backgrounds will conceal their identity. Oftentimes they are pretty classist. I've had experiences and it comes back to this meritocracy idea and right. this idea that, oh, well, I have achieved. Yes. I have overcome poverty. And so everyone else and therefore should, should be able to do that too. And so I'm going to sort of, I don't know, police be negative. Well, toward... but that's how you separate yourself from the mm -hmm. people that are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. In the meritocracy myth. I did it. I accomplished it. Everyone else has the same chance I did, which is mm -hmm. why I try to say a lot. My whiteness, my heterosexuality, these are things that buffered against right. That that allowed the academy to make the mistake of letting me in. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I usually uh, say. Yes. There's plenty of women faculty. It's not that sexism is gone from the academy, but I, the working class part was the mistake of the academy more. Well, in some ways, I feel like that's like a reward for concealment, right? Mm -hmm. That be, the skill that we've developed to conceal becomes sort of like similar to passing in the queer community becomes this sort of bragging right that you are mask or you are able to conceal that you're from a, a low income status. And then you start to police others. And I, I know that I did that early on in my career where I was correcting people's grammar. Oh my God. Guilty. Writing. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, and it all came from this internal. I feel so triggered by you right now. <laughs> yeah. And all from this place of perfectionism where I yeah. cannot mess up or they That's will a good not. point. Mm-hmm. And so they'll you find you mess up or they'll know, right? Like, yeah, I'm trying to help you hide your identity. And, and it was sort of a, I mean, it was not sort of, it was a really shitty realization when, when I realized I was doing that. And it, and it not only impacted students from low income backgrounds, but it also influenced my interactions with, with people from other marginalized groups too. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. This is deep. I corrected my family's grammar a lot. Oh yeah, yes. Like what a little what a little annoying little <laughs> kid. Probably starting in elementary school, I did mm -hmm. that. And then it took me way too long into my adulthood to be like, "Stop. What are you yeah. doing?" Yeah, like, I think that's one of my biggest regrets is this oh. communication of shame to my family oh my that, gosh. that I was sort of like embarrassed by them mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and the way that they talk and and I really regret that. I wish I had been more this is a therapy session. Yeah. Vocal I, I regret it too. I, yeah, I right. regret it too. And I corrected my grandmother a lot. I can't, mm. I can't do anything about that now. You know what I mean? Yep. Now when I go home, so my mom and I just had a trip and we were there like five days and I just love it so much. I need you all to say all the phrases. I just want to absorb everything. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. my mom actually for most recent holiday season got a journal and like wrote down a bunch of phrases for me. And so we're mm. trying to add to them. And yeah. I do that on my phone. I'll write down yeah. phrases. Because because I don't want them to be gone. And mm -hmm. so my great grandmothers um, did not really say much about anyone ever. But one critique she had of others was just to give the advice, tend to your own knitting. Mm -hmm. um, and it wouldn't be said even with the, you know, elocution that I just had, tend to your own knitting and stay out of other people's business. In Maine, it's mind ya. Mind ya. Mind ya. <laughs> it's much more, it's much more efficient yeah. in terms of <laughs> length. Yeah. Mind, mind, mind your mind own business. business. Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, so now I'm like on this mission to reabsorb and if I can work them into conversations in the, yeah, <laughs> like trying to do that, you know, one of the things I experienced, but didn't, this is the thing I didn't realize it for so long that 
there was this reading of my behaviors that was happening from this other lens, right? This other middle or upper middle class lens, mm-hmm. but it has to do with being, you know, passionate about conversations and debates and threat is loud or aggressive or some sort of over the top, oh, overly emotional, which I'm like, no, you haven't seen that. Mm-hmm. That's not yeah. what this is. <laughs> this is normal loud. level. Yeah. This is totally normal level. For me, it's similar in that I don't think that faculty who aren't from working class backgrounds realize how much work we're doing to blend in. Oh, my God, Ryan. Um, So the emotional labor, the sort of physical, physical, behavioral, physical behavior, sort of policing our own behavior Mm -hmm. and, and learning. I have learned how to speak in specific ways when I'm around specific people and that I have to use a different inflection and speak a little bit quicker and have a a little bit different way, way of talking to specific people. I hope our chats validate your experiences, inspire you to embrace self-compassion and give you hope for wellness and balance as you navigate your career as a social justice academic. As a reminder, you can find essays, resources, professional development options, and a link to join my community newsletter at drkimcase.com. Until next time, remember you are already enough.